Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Door Creek. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. Really glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here. So for the church family, those of you that knew about our daughter, uh, she's giving birth to our first grandchild, so a little grandson, and this is exciting news, but there's been some really serious complications, and I shared that. If you weren't here last week, I just want to give an update. So in, in the beginning of um, this year, the doctor said, we think there's some things going on with the heart. We want to take a closer look. There's this thing called TGA. It's a transposition of the greater arteries, meaning the arteries weren't hooking up to the right places in the heart. No problem in utero. Big problem. You need open heart surgery like week one. So it's a big deal. Saw a hole in the heart, which to me sounds like a big deal, and they go, not a big deal. That's an easy fix. So um, Laura's husband's in the military, and so they were going back and forth to try and get a second opinion to get down to Houston, which is like the second leading pediatric cardiac care place in the country. So she got down there a little over a week ago, and uh, they looked at it, and they said, hey, we don't see this transposition of the greater arteries. Now, I'm going to confess, the first thing I did was those bumpkins up in Harker Heights, <laughs> they got to get some new gear because they obviously missed the diagnosis. And God just kind of tapped me. He says, well, there could be another storyline, you pathetic preacher. So last Friday in Houston, they said, but we do see a dilation in the vena cava, and that's often a, a, a problem with the brain. Brain? You know, and this whole time, her man's down in Central America where he's a captain in the Army. And so that was terrifying. And on Monday, thanks so much. Thank you so much for those of you who are praying. So she meets with the neurologist Monday morning. They do more scans. The neurologist goes, the brain is beautiful. The brain is perfect. And by the way, that large heart, the hole in the heart, the large one, we think it's more like a small to medium one. You're good to go. Just go back to Harker Heights. You can really have your baby anywhere. This is not a high-risk pregnancy at this point. So thank you so much for praying. And Lori and I just felt the weight, you know, that we didn't know we were carrying in this stressful time. And Laura... She just went home and slept, you know. She's just so tired. So that actually reminds me of um, our, our text today and life as we catch up with God's people in the desert. You know, hard times are stressful times. And they say that we have three kind of fundamental responses to stress. And most of us have a, um, a default. You, you fight it, right? You move towards it. You, uh, you run away, flight, and you know the third one is, you know, the catatonic, you freeze. You, you don't know what to do. It's the classic deer caught in the headlights, right? I don't know what your default is, but I know I can quickly help you know what your default is. If you're married, what do you do when you get in a fight? It's like, oh, man, I'm just going to try and just, I'm just going to say something so that, let's, because I don't, I don't, can we talk later? You know, I just, I don't want to, okay. Or you go, all right, yeah, what about it? What about it? <laughs> you, you're going to know, you go, I'm not married. Okay, it doesn't, it, like this happens in close relations. That's your default. And what we're seeing with the, the Israelites is their cardinal default, which we don't know how to fit it into the three Fs, is they're grumbling. And, um, 
And, and that's what they're at. God is, right, God's taken them. He's rescued them out of slavery. This is where we're at in the story. So we're, we're in Exodus, which is all about being rescued, not just by God, not just from slavery, but rescued for God, for a relationship. God's in the relationship business. He's not in the rescue business. He doesn't want to be your rabbit's foot that you only go to when it's hard. He created us for himself. He redeems them. He rescues them out of Egypt for himself. And they're on the way to the promised land. And they're going to ratify the terms of the relationship on Mount Sinai. That's where we find them. But they're traveling through the desert, and the desert is this hard time, and there are these daily tests of trusting God, and God's building trust. He's building their faith in the hard places. He's doing that right now for you. It's super hard. And if you walk with Jesus for a little bit of time or a long period of time, here's what you're going to hear from the people who've walked with Jesus for a long time, is the times where I've grown the most has been in the storms of life, in the desert, in the hard things. God builds trust. But the challenge in the desert is the hard circumstances dominate. And they start talking to us. And these strong feelings start to parse it and help us understand what's going on. But as strong as they are, it doesn't mean they're true. They really exist, but their conclusions aren't true. And so I love this quote that one of my friends gave at the end of the service last week. And it goes like this from Jerry Bridges. Why don't you repeat it with me? It's good for all of us to hear. Ready? Don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. Stay in the word. So when it's hard, God says, trust me. How do we trust him? Today, we remember his faithfulness in the past. How do we trust him today? We're actually gathering in the manna. We're looking for his daily sweet provision. And, and we know we're gaining on it because there's less grumbling and there's more gratitude. So God's people are moving to this relationship. They're at the foot of the mountain. God says to Moses, tell the people in three days, we're going to have this wedding ceremony. We're going to exchange our vows. We're going to seal the deal. And so have them get ready. And on the third day, they wake up and the mountain has changed. They're, they're right at the base of Mount Sinai and it's changed God's presence has come on the mountain. And with that, there's this storm and thunder and lightning and there's fire and there's smoke and it's billowing and it's like a volcano and it's like an earthquake, it's trembling. And then there's this surreal sound of a trumpet and over all the roar of what's going on naturally is God's voice. And the people are literally undone. So grab your Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 20, where the where the um, terms of the relationship are laid out, the Ten Commandments, right? This is what it means to be God's people. And then we're, so we're gonna go from God revealing the terms to the people ratifying, you know, committing to the terms, and then we're gonna see them rejecting it, breaking it off. This is gonna, this is gonna be like a marriage that goes bad on the honeymoon. It means that quick. And then we're gonna quickly notice how God renews what they've rejected and broken. So verse, tw verse 1 of chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he's just saying, so just so you know, this is the God that you're coming into relationship with. You're coming into the one who rescued you 
out of slavery. This is who I am. I'm a redeemer God, and I've rescued you for a relationship. And so what he's telling them and what he's telling us is God establishes the relationship. He initiates it by his gracious rescue. So think the cross, because we're not Old Testament followers of God. We're New Testament. The Exodus account is always mirroring the greater salvation account of God rescuing his people through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. And so that when, when you're into religion, you're going, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to secure this relationship with God, his good graces, his favor, because that would be a good thing if Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, is my friend, right? That would be a good thing for me. And so I'm going to do the work to establish the relationship. But no, 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 no. From the very beginning, God in his grace saves us. And because of that, our obedience, our trust in him is in response to his saving work, not for it. So it's this whole grace construct. So then he starts laying out the terms. You got the Ten Commandments, which really summarize the whole law. And Jesus says, I can summarize the whole law in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest. The first. And then the second, like unto the first, love your neighbors yourself. So notice, the first four commandments has everything to do with our relationship with God. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No gods, right? No idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And then the last six have everything to do with our relationship with our neighbor. Honoring mom and dad, no murder, adultery, stealing, lying, coveting. These are the terms, right? And so they're in God's presence. They're down on the base of the mountain. God is thundering forth from the top of the mountain. Fire, volcanic, earthquake. And verse 18 says, they're, they're like undone. Look at it, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This was like they were completely overwhelmed. So have you been following what's going on in California with the storms and this Oroville Dam that they're worried is just going to break, break out? And so they've got this spillway that's trying to release all this water that's coming out of the mountains. And when you get to the close-up shot of the spillway, I mean, it's just this raging mass of water. And I don't have to be there. I don't have to hear it. I don't have to be on the ground to go, that's a destructive force. And if that wall, if that dam gives out, it is just going to wipe out everything in its path. So, but there, there isn't a dam. There, there isn't anything protective around the mountain. It's God's holy, terrifying presence. And they're doing what we would have done. Like, Moses, this is, we're, we're going to die. And they didn't, they didn't talk about the fire they said his voice. So the, the most terrifying thing is the power of God's word. Remember, it's God's voice that brings everything into creation out of nothing. There's this raw exposure to God's voice, and they're undone. They go, we don't belong in his presence, Moses. It's like they do it. You go. Do you remember when you were kids? My sister Madeline's um, visiting this weekend. I remember when we were kids and we would get in trouble or, or, or try to negotiate with mom and dad. She was so good at that. We'd say, Madeline, you go talk to them. And that's what they're doing. Say, Moses, you go. 
Because we can't, we want God to talk to you and you tell us what he said. Because we can't stand in his presence or we will die. And so Moses goes up and he's in God's presence. In verse 23, this is the very first thing that God says to Moses, having just given him the Ten Commandments. He goes back to where he started. He tells Moses to tell the people, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. This is important. It's the first thing he says. It's the last thing. It's the first thing he says in the Ten Commandments. It's the first thing he says when the people say, we can't hear it anymore. You just go for us. He repeats it. It's telling us this is really important. What is God saying? Like, I'm not in polygamy, he's saying. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting an exclusive relationship. I'm not one of many gods. I'm the one and only God. It's just with me. And in chapter 24, verse 3, the people say, everything the Lord has said, we will do it. They ratify the covenant. We're going to do it all. And then there's the exchange of rings in chapter 24, verse 8. Verse, um, eight and we're going, well, that's not how we do it. Because when I do a wedding, I'll say this line, what holy promises, what symbols do you give of your holy promises? And they always answer, the bride and groom, what? A ring. And then there's this exchange. And sometimes the guys do goofy things with rings and they can't find it. And I smack the best man and say, come on, knock it off. It's a worship service. Okay, so there's a ring. Well, there's no rings. There's blood. We're going, what's going on? It says he takes the blood from the, from the animal, the bull that's been sacrificed, and he takes the hyssop branch, and he dips it in the blood, and he starts sprinkling it. You go, what in the world is going on? The, the sprinkling of blood was always this whole thing of th this relationship is being sealed in blood. Somebody gave up their life. Some animal gave up their life for this relationship. And this blood now is setting these people apart for this exclusive relationship for the God who loves them, who made them, who redeemed them from Israel, desires them. He calls them their, his treasured possession. So in chapter 24, all the way through 31, Moses is back up on the mountain where he was told to go up with his tablets that God is going to inscribe the Ten Commandments in the two tablets of stone, right? And he goes up to the mountain and he's getting all these instructions about the tabernacle and about the priests. And if we're in, Le in Leviticus, like we are right now in our Old Testament reading plan, we're going, this is so hard. What is all this stuff about? Well, it's explaining and answering this really important question that they got really clear in their minds as they were right there in front of God on the mountain. Like, how do unholy people have a relationship with a holy God? Because we don't, we don't belong in his presence and we're afraid to be in his presence. How does that work? That's the tabernacle. That's the sacrifices and the priests who are the mediators of this relationship, speaking to the people on God's behalf and to God on the people's behalf, offering sacrifices for their unholiness that they might have a place in this relationship, this covenant relationship. So at the end of chapter 24, verse 18, it says Moses is up on that mountain for 40 days. That's important because when we get to this whole story that we're going to focus in now, the golden calf, we, we need to understand he's been up there a long time. In fact, that's how chapter 32 starts. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods 
and who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. I'm sure they're thinking, he's gone, he died. We almost did, we're just on the bottom of the mountain. He's up in the top with the fire and all that. He's gone, he died, we're pretty sure. And we're not going to look for the body. Aaron answered them, verse two, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me, Exodus 12. They're walking out of Egypt. God says, hey, on your way out, make sure you ask your Egyptian neighbors for, for some of the gold and silver. Because this is, this is the Egyptian gold that they're walking, that they walked out with, that they're now giving to Aaron. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it. He made it into an idol. He cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Remember that, because we're going to run up to his lame excuse in just a bit. Then they said... This is the people of Israel now. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What, what did God say at the beginning of the, of, of the Ten Commandments, of the terms of the relationship? Remember that I'm the God. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. No, these are, these are the gods. And we go, why is it plural here? Because that word Elohim in the Hebrew could be translated plural or singular. It's the context. This is the God. This is the God who led you out of Egypt. This is him. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar, verse five, in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and they got in a lot of trouble and they got up to indulge in revelry. So, the, the covenant's ratified and now in short order. It's like the honeymoon. It's off. They've clearly broken the first two commands. And Aaron has fashioned a God that is similar to the God of the Egyptians, Apis, who is the God of fertility and strength. In fact, throughout the ancient world, in that part of the world, like the Canaanites, they had the Baal. The Baal was in the image of a bull, this God. And so Aaron calls for a festival and these people move from a time of worship to a time of debauchery where in their drunkenness, there's all kinds of sexual immorality. That's what Paul says was going on here in 1 Corinthians 10. And God's response is clear. He is angry. Notice what he's angry over, how they've quickly turned away. So th this is kind of important to kind of get the construct. So every passage in the Bible isn't teaching the same thing. What is unique here? It's this whole thing. In a hard place, when God delays, the temptation is to quickly turn away. That the delay can bring up all this doubt. Like, where is God? Where's Moses? He's God's man. He's the guy that let us out of Eden. Where is God? We think God just took out our leader. Doubt brings delay. You're like, you're, you're a young couple, you wanting to have a child and you're dealing with infertility. It's one of the huge struggles. What's going on? You've got a health issue and how long have you been chasing it out, trying to figure out what is going on here? How long have you been working on your marriage? And you're going, this is so hard. And in the delay, whatever it is, and some of us are right in it right now and we're wanting to give up. 
and turn back to something that we know of, we turn to in the past, or culture would say, that's a good place. That's a good thing to pin your hopes on. That's a good place to go back to for a little comfort when your life just stinks right now. And all you know is hard, and I just need a little sweet comfort. The golden calf. The golden calf. So it's, it's important we understand the context here. So, so God's angry that they've so quickly turned away. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, they're up on the mountain, right? Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. He won't even call them his people. So they, they've been ruined here. It's a spiritual corruption. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded. And that's going to be the temptation. In the delay, when it's hard, we're going to quickly go, it's not working out so good. I thought if God was my God and loved me, he'd, he'd, have, he'd have showed up by now. They've, quick, they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. That is, they're stubborn, obstinate, rebellious. Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. This is like Genesis 6 all over again, where every inclination of their thoughts were always evil all the time. And God said, in in Noah's day, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm starting over with you, Noah. It's like Noah too with Moses right here. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen in his great speech before he stoned to death is re rehearsing Israel's history. And on this very story, this is what he says, how he describes God's people. But our ancestors refused to obey God. See the intentional, willful, obstinate nature of their hearts? Instead, they rejected him. They didn't just try to represent him in an idol. They rejected him. That's really important. When we turn to something, we might think, well, you know, Jesus is great, but a little something from the past that I've trusted in before, that might really be the double whammy, and I'm going for the double, the daily double here. He say, no, you're not adding. You're rejecting. They didn't add the idol. They rejected me. They rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. what they do? Flight. We're out of here. So Moses' response is he appeals to God in this beautiful, beautiful way. And what he does is he appeals to him on several fronts. So we'll pick up the story. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, the Lord. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Lord, don't waste that great saving act. What do you, please don't turn away from what you've done in redeeming this people for you. Why should the Egyptians, now he's going to appeal on the basis of his, of his reputation, his character, his, his glory, why should the, your enemies say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember, he called them your people, Moses. And Moses said, no, they're your people, remember? 
Remember your servants. Now he's going to appeal on the basis of God's word and his promise to Abraham. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. And then verse 14, then the Lord relented. So what did the people need who were quick to turn away to an idol in the midst of something was hard? They needed somebody to stand in the gap and plead with God for mercy so that they wouldn't be destroyed. That's what they needed. And that's what they got. And that's what we have in the greater Moses, Jesus. Look at this passage in Psalm 106. At Horeb. So Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Same place, same place, right? Same story. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshiped an idol cast from metal. Here's what they did. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull. I love that it adds these three words, which eats grass. Why, why didn't the psalmist just say for an image of a bull? What's the eats grass? Well, you could say, well, it's just a dumb animal that eats grass. Is there more? I probably... The Psalms, all full of this imagery, is always helping us to slow down and go deep. So I was just thinking about, it's an image of God, it's a bull. And all it does is it eats grass, these idols. What does it mean, eats grass? They, they, they just, they're consumers. They just take from us. They make all these promises. But at the end of the day, that's what they do. They eat a lot of grass and they leave big piles of you know what. That's what they do. They don't give life, they consume life. They destroy life. In the image of a bull which eats grass. That's all the little g gods that we're turning to. They're consumers. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham. The land of Ham is uh, the, the, the son of Noah who settled down in Egypt, right? And awesome deeds by the Red Sea, the party of the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them. That's what God said he was gonna do, right? Verse 10, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach, in the gap before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. That's what they needed. That's what we need. And that's what we have in the greater Moses and all that this is pointing forward to, a man who stood in the gap and did so much more than pray for us. So Moses is coming off the mountain, and now he's getting his eyes on the story. And verse 19 says, chapter 32, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. It's symbolic of what's just happened. You've broken the relationship. You've broken the covenants. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Here's your God. Taste it. Taste it. Take it in. And he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And just notice, when we turn to idols, we will come up with all kinds of lame rationalizations for why we did it, and we will do all kinds of, uh, of gymnastics mentally to say, it wasn't my fault. And at this point, we need a little levity in the story, and we're getting it right here. Oh, my goodness, are we getting it. So he says, verse 22, don't be angry, my Lord. Aaron answered, you know how prone these people are to evil. 
They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire. And out jumped this calf. Well, I, know, I know you think it was me. I know I'm the leader when you're not here. But it, Moses, this was not about me. You know those people. They were a bad group of people. They are evil. They had wicked desires. They wanted me to make these, these the, a God for them. And all I did is I just, they gave me some gold. I, threw, I didn't know what to do. I just threw it in the fire and out it jumped. How lame was that? How lame was that? And we remember that it was cast. And we remember that it was fashioned with tools by his own hand. Verse 25, the humor is quickly gone in this story. And we come to the part where, quite frankly, I wish it wasn't in the Bible. But here it is. And we're not going to read around it. We're going to go through it and see what God's word has to say to us that would teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us to be people who love him and love our neighbor. So Moses saw that the people were running wild. So verse 26, he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said this, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. Because right now, what, it, what does the Bible say? They rejected the Lord. Who, who, who's, who wants to go on with God? Who is for the Lord? Who wants to be God's man, God's woman? And all the Levites, so the, this is the priestly tribe, the sons of Levi, they rallied to him, to Moses. And this is where it's hard. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, this is what Moses came up with. This is what God told Moses to do. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you've been set apart. He's speaking to the Levites. You've been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he's blessed you this day, not for killing him, but for taking God at his word for obedience. So Moses knows that he needs to pray for these people. Chapter 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. I can, I can plead for the removal, the covering of your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. I, I'm, I don't want a part of your deal. I don't, want to, I, I don't want you to start over with me. I'm identifying with your people, and if you're going to wipe us all out, then you've got to wipe me out too. What is the book? It's just the record of those who are living. I, I, blot me out. Take me out. I'm with them. This is powerful. We're surprised by, I mean, it could have easily been, you're right, Lord. And okay, I thought about it a second time. You, you can start over with me. No, that's not what he said. So the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. 
And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Let's just remember a few things. God's word is true. It's God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. And it is useful, it is profitable to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that the man of God and the people of God are adequately equipped to do all the good works that God's called us to do. So what do we do with this? We remember things. We remember, first of all, this is God's judgment on his people who promised that they would do everything he commanded. Second, we remember that sin is serious and it always leads to death because sin separates us from the living God. We're now no longer functioning in faith. And when we're not in faith, we don't have spiritual connectivity. We don't have spiritual oxygen. We're cut off. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death. God says, you eat of the fruit. You don't take me at my word. You don't trust me. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. That's the nature of things. We remember that. Sin is serious, and it separates us from a holy God. And we remember, too, that we're just like these people. We haven't loved God with all of our heart. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. And we easily would turn back to things that aren't God. Just these idols that just eat grass. We need a savior. We need a man to stand in the gap for us. We remember that the people chose this. They said to Aaron, make us a God. Make us a God. We remember that God's judgment is part of his perfect, holy character. And when God is just, it doesn't mean that he's not loving. And when God is loving, it doesn't mean that he's not just. It's, it's the two sides of a quarter. You're not confused that one side is heads and one side is tails. You go, I get it. It's a quarter. God's holy character comprises all of it. That's what he's saying when he renews the covenant in chapter 34. You'll see it on the screen, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, not what he's done in rescuing God's people from Egypt, but who he is. The Lord, he's speaking of himself. The Lord, now how he, he starts describing himself. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. The, the, the context is generations. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We go, we love that God. I'm for that God. That's all true. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's just. And one day he will right all wrongs. We remember that. And we remember that God did do something about the people's inability to keep the covenant. One of the deals with the law was God gave the law to teach him about who God is, his character. God gave the law to teach his people that they are incapable of keeping the covenant, that they need a savior. And so God did do something about the predicament that we keep running into ever since Genesis chapter three. And he sent his chosen servant, even his only son, to stand in the gap, not by praying for us, which Jesus does, 
Not by bringing a sacrifice, but by being the sacrifice. That Jesus was destroyed on the cross to save us from destruction that we deserved. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the wrath of God came down on him because all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, was on him. He was destroyed so that you and I could live. And so you're tempted in what's hard and what's not happening to quickly turn away. You go, I'm not tempted. I've done it. I'm there. This text is telling us, remember the mercy of God that saved us at the beginning for this relationship is the mercy that is available to all who turned away. And we can stand in God's presence because there's a man in the gap that we're trusting that took it all on himself. He not only satisfied God's justice, he extended his loving mercy. Let's pray. So, Lord, we're so glad we don't meet you on a scary mountain. We're so glad we don't have to work through all the altars and sacrifices and the priests and all of that. But, Lord Jesus, it's, it's you. That's how we run into your presence, Father God, through your Son, your chosen Son. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us as we find ourselves turning away, as we find ourselves going, Jesus, we need more and not trusting you. Have mercy on us. And may we be people who remember who you are and what you've done, that we might proclaim your praise and live for your glory until you come or call us home. In Christ's name we pray.